It's hard to think about tech startups without thinking U.S. and Brazil, just like it's impossible for corporations to ignore digital transformation. In Brazil, there's one venture capital firm that is bundling all of that together by investing in some of the most innovative companies abroad, bringing them to Latin America, and connecting them with big local companies to accelerate their adoption of technology. One of the first Brazilian female founders of a venture capital firm. Camila started her career as a corporate lawyer, having worked for major law firms assisting Fortune 500 clients, but made a quick transition to startup and VC life after spending some time in the Bay Area. Back in Brazil, she was looking for opportunities to stay close to the ecosystem, which led her to join Acelera Partners, an investment holding spearheaded by Microsoft. There, she met her co-founder, Daniel Ibri, and they found out that they had similar visions, eventually translating into Mindset Ventures thesis. Today, Camila shares not only what that is and how they invest, but also her insights into Israeli entrepreneurial culture, the biggest challenges for companies from Israel and the U.S. to come to Latin America, and what to be aware of when accepting corporations to your cap table. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Camila, welcome to the Latitude Podcast. It's great to have you on here. Now, I want to start off just by having a bit of conversation. We'll dig into mindset shortly, but maybe if you could start off by just sharing how do you transition from corporate law to venture capital and how did you think that experience helped you as an investor? Absolutely. So thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. So usually corporate lawyers don't want to be lawyers. So they usually want to work businesses, corporations, multinational clients, funds, and they already do a lot of transaction work for them, right? So I had this in me for a while. I mean, since the beginning of college. And although I I really like and enjoy the legal part, it was not something that I wanted to keep doing for the entire part of my life, you know, the rest of my life. So, I mean, when I, I transitioned from corporate law to business, I don't think it was a huge leap because you're already part of the business world. You know, you're already involved in, 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 the, in the conversations and with the clients, you understand their needs. So that's why, like in my previous life, I used to deal with all sorts of clients and business in the sense. But the thing that I really had to change was my mentality. So you actually need to throw away all your trainings as a lawyer and start thinking maybe as engineers, economists, uh, administrators, people that have different trainings and that have brains that were formatted in a different way. So I think that for me was the biggest challenge in in turning myself from transitioning from corporate law to venture capital. But I think that all the experience was was really good because as we invest in a lot of companies, we know... um, and we help those companies in getting to the corporations and, you know, having to negotiate different terms. I think that my experience is really was is really good in, in solving those kind of uh, problems and also negotiating with the startups when we are investing in them. So I think that this is this was good, although I don't think it was really was something quality, a skill that was strong enough for people when I decided to transition. So when they saw me as a lawyer, you were like, I oh, know you're a lawyer, you don't have a financial background, right? So it was hard for me to find a place that would give me like my first job in this area. So you broke in and you're now, you're at Mindset Ventures. Talk about the thesis that Mindset has, because I think it's pretty interesting. There's this cross-border component and want to hear more about 
how the firm is positioned and, you know, kind of what the thesis is. Absolutely. I'll just give a few step back and tell you about how we got to mindset. So the thing is, when I moved to Silicon Valley and was part of my transition that I started to study at Berkeley, business administration, focus on a different aspect and try to find startups to work for. Uh, I started studying computer programming to open my mind. So I was having a really uh, Silicon Valley immersion. It was uh, really impressive of how uh, Americans were dealing with this market. And when I came back to Brazil, of course, I still I didn't want to, to be uh, a lawyer anymore. I was trying to find a place to start working for and actually really help the company. So I started, I joined Acelera Partners, which was a multi-corporate fund an initiative that was started by Microsoft a few years ago to gather all corporations to actually nurture the Brazilian ecosystem. So uh, they had Microsoft, Qualcomm, Banco Votorantim, Monsanto, Banco do Brasil, big Brazilian banks, right, involved in the project. And they were trying to find the startups in Brazil and actually maybe even become clients of that and invest in that. So uh, I started that as, a, as an analyst and I, I eventually I became the head of operations. And that's where I met my co-founder, Daniel Ibri. Uh, who became uh, CEO after a few months that I joined. And the fact that we knew a lot about the Silicon Valley market, we knew a lot about the Brazilian market for us was really interesting because we had an opportunity to invest in a few companies that were being accelerated by Microsoft in Tel Aviv. And we did a pilot, we invested in eight companies back there. We were really impressed with how the market worked and uh, the companies and the entrepreneurs' mindset. So... For us, when we decided that we wanted to keep doing this, invest in Israeli companies, invest in American companies, invest in Brazilian companies and try to help them and find some synergies, we talked to the board at Acelera at the time and they were like, guys, we cannot do this. Our mandate is only for Brazilian companies. We have to keep investing in Brazil. But if you want to do by yourselves, like feel free, we're going to help you any way we can. So Daddy and I were like, okay, let's do this. Let's start Mindset Ventures. So we Actually, we were working inside for Microsoft here in Brazil, and uh, we started Mindset in 2016. So you were invested. The mandate was, okay, Brazil-focused, and then you want to do some things on your own you, in, you know, in Israel and in the U.S., and then where do you go from there? So this is, was for us a letter, right? So since the beginning, our thesis has been to invest in early-stage B2B companies based out of U.S. and Israel. We currently don't invest in Brazilian companies. Our sweet spot is Series A rounds. And we focus on industries that we believe that we can add value, such as fintech, health tech, agri-tech, cybersecurity, and enterprise software. Our average X size is $1.5 million, and we usually don't lead the rounds. Uh, we co-invest with local VCs. We have three offices, so one in Sao Paulo, one in San Francisco, and one in Tel Aviv. We have partners in, in California and also in, in Israel. And we have around 45 companies in our portfolio. Currently, we just actually just finished fundraising our third fund. And I think that one of the ways that uh, we support our companies is to help them with their expansion strategy to Brazil, Latin America, but especially Brazil. Got it. So the primary companies are primarily domiciled Israel or in the U.S. or both? What's the distribution there? And, and how do you help them enter Latin America or Brazil? So it's um, most like 50-50, for instance, like in fund one, we had 18 companies and uh, I think that it was nine, nine, uh, second fund, basically the same. And for the, the third fund, 
is also going to be the same. In terms of the help that we gave them, so for instance, we usually uh, try to, first of all, we, we develop like a market research for them. So to understand like, what are the market players? What do you have already here in terms of technology? How corporations would uh, accept your solution in terms of price, in terms of technology? How's in the integration? Who is the champion? In terms of like establishing a company. So finding the lawyers, finding accountants, um, finding local representatives, so even hiring people. So we try to cover all the, the parts of actually helping a company to expand to a different geography. And what are the biggest challenges for those companies in Israel and the U.S. to come to Latin America? What have you seen has been the biggest barrier for them? I think that there are a few points, a few challenges. So there is the bureaucratic part, which I consider to be a real challenge. Open a company, hire people, understand all taxes applicable to your business, there is the cultural barrier. Brazilians are not used to say no. So we prefer to give signs such as taking a long, a real long time to reply an email or even never replying. And this is extremely difficult for, for Israeli and Americans to understand because their way of communicating is always to be direct. Israeli are even more direct with their chutzpah way, right? Um, I think that another one is the language barrier. So most Brazilians are not proficient in English. So when we have a foreigner presenting their solution, normally the message and differentials of the company are not entirely comprehended and companies might need more meetings than usual. And I think that the positive side of this challenge, though, just like you've experienced in your early days of Ivanhoe, when Brazilians find out they will talk to a gringo, a foreigner, they are usually more open to listening and scheduling a meeting. I don't know if you, if you had the same experience, but I think you have. And uh, today, I think that another challenge that is worth mentioning is the current exchange rate. So foreign solutions have become more expensive for Brazilian corporations. And because of that, plans of, for expanding to Brazil are being delayed. Or, and at the same time, that pricing strategy is being revised. So I, I guess okay, those so are the main challenges. So you don't invest in Brazil-based companies at all? or no. Yeah, no, Only those international companies that, come, that yes. want to come to the region? Yes. It's not mandatory to come to the region, but it's uh, something that we do for them. Got it. Okay. And why is it that Israel has kind of created this ecosystem where it's probably one of the largest tech ecosystems in the world, yet it's this tiny country? I remember going to Tel Aviv several years ago with Monashis. They took us there and we met with a handful of companies, really impressive founders, super big visions, you know, an incredibly great operators from an execution standpoint. Why is that? Tell me more about the thesis behind why Israel is so good at going global. I think that, uh, first of all, I would say that is in entrepreneurial culture. I mean, it, similar to the U.S. in this point, I think that U.S. and Israel have always promoted and incentivized their people in becoming entrepreneurs, right? So you see that in school programs, in the army, with government incentive plans, so I think that they nurtured this uh, sense and this feeling of becoming of entrepreneurs since the beginning, right? And specifically regarding Israel, they have to be global. So their market is not enough. So they have to think outside the box. They have to think like in solutions that they can offer anywhere. Uh, so I think that this is a huge differential. And although like they have the best uh, universities in terms of tech universities, right? Engineering, etc. I think that they still uh, lack the commercial side of it. So 
if you compare U.S. and Israel, I mean, U.S., uh, the, the Americans have a really nice way of selling. So they, they have the commercial uh, side of them, right, ready. And uh, I think that the, Israeli part, the Israelis, they have the tax side, but they still have to uh, work on their commercial one. And I think that, of course, this complements each other, U.S. and Israeli. But I think that basically that this is the reason why, why Israel is such a, an amazing tech ecosystem. And when we look at some of your background points that you've got, there's these large corporations that exist, right? And that there's these big pain points that need to be solved from these corporations. Do you have any examples of uh, things that you've seen that have worked out great from that standpoint? So I think that it's been a while, but businesses across multiple industries are feeling the heat from disruptors who are using digital to revolutionize how customers interact with them or how to improve productivity or how to be compliant with new regulations or how to protect your information from hackers or how to measure your cyber risk, right? So big corporations know customers are becoming um, more and more impatient with who don't keep up. And for that, they need to innovate faster. So when to do that, they need to look at startups. Uh, I think that there is no other way. So I think that one example uh, that I think it's really nice to, to mention is from a company in our portfolio called C3. They are an Israeli startup uh, that provide three health insights using a combination of drones, uh, sensors, artificial intelligence, multispectral imaging, and uh, in, in field data collection. And with those insights, uh, fruit growers can assess and continually monitor the health and growth rate of their orchards and, and groves, producing personalized cultivation plants for each tree or a cluster of trees. So this solution called the attention of the world's largest producer of orange juice concentrate, Citrusuco. They understood that the technology can revolutionize agriculture and uh, have a transformative impact on productivity, environment, and the livelihoods of farmers, right? So uh, besides becoming a client of C3, they also decided to invest in them in the company in, uh, last year. So, I mean, it was a combination because they saw like the, the need of innovating, of how uh, becoming better, and also Saudi opportunity, like we need it, really need to invest in these guys. We don't know where they're going to go, but we need we really need to be there. There are many things. I've struggled a little bit with the corporate venture capital that comes straight from companies' venture initiatives and that come through institutional fund. Walk me through how you see that, because a lot of times there's this corporate venture capital, but it's really just a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? So how do you balance a true kind of venture initiative and the M&A is described as a venture fund. How do you think about that? And how should founders yeah. think about that? So you're right. Uh, so mainly, I think that CVC is ultimately beholden to the corporate, whereas traditional VC has more aligned incentives to the startups. And that's the reason why startups need to be careful uh, with who they partner with. And I think that there's also the point that Corporations don't quite understand what it means to invest in a startup. And sometimes for being so bureaucratic, they end up harming the company. I don't know, for instance, like they take a long time to, to decide if they're going to invest or not. And the company needs like the money right away. And uh, this could harm, harm the company. And some other times they usually like impose some deal terms, like you said, like how it's kind of an M&A transaction. So I think that sometimes what we, we've seen with the companies that are looking to fundraise from CVCs, 
they usually prefer to have more than one strategic corporation in order to avoid all this micromanagement, all this um, eventually uh, prohibit uh, M&A transaction because they want to buy the company and they don't agree with the terms that the other investor is or the other corporation is putting for them. So I think that if you want their funds, if you want their money, you have to look for more than one strategy. Otherwise, it's going to be a real mess. I mean, at least from, from I don't know, my view. I don't know if, if you also... If you also felt that. Yeah, I mean, I had the first person I had on my podcast was Nico Sakasi from Mercado Libre, and they had eBay invest in their company and they took an 18% stake. And that obviously made it less attractive for Amazon and anyone else that wanted to buy. And they ended up going public. And that was the only way to kind of figure out the cap table situation. But I actually recall sitting in a, a little conference in Tel Aviv, and I don't remember which venture fund, one of the top venture funds from Israel was presenting. And I think there's a lot of corporate venture capital in Israel. There's a lot of big corporations and they're very active. And he was putting on a presentation about the do nots around corporate venture capital. And I remember as a founder, I learned this through experience where I received a term sheet twice from corporates and both times, one time there was a rofer involved, which is a right of first refusal And just for the founders listening, if you have a rofer in your terms, you're selling the company. It doesn't matter if you're selling 20% of the company, you've essentially sold the company. And so it's definitely a problem. And even a rofo, which is a a right of first offer, is something that you shouldn't do early on in most cases. So uh, just be mindful of that because you'll be in a situation where you're essentially selling the company and you might have a majority stake of the company, but you've kind of lost some control because the governance and the economics can be separated in that way. So anyways, just wanted to, you know, that's my two cents on that. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And even like if you, if you're able to get a term sheet from a venture capital fund and not the CVC and have the CVC join the round where the terms are already established, that's much better as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I mean, I like your point on when I did think about this, and taking money from another company, I wanted to get two competitors or three competitors in the same round uh, because essentially you're just kind of, you're bidding up a little bit the future acquisition situation when you've got multiple yeah. players at the table. And then you're also just not giving any inside kind of track from one company. So I think that that can work. I uh, haven't seen it happen very often in terms of multiple corporates going in because all MA teams are, they want their special path, uh, but it's something that can happen. Just one not another comment as well, Brian. I don't know if you've seen this, but sometimes also CVCs, but also VC funds, they intend to, they prefer to invest in the company in trenches, right? And putting some milestones. And I think that when they do that, it's not usually so healthy for the, the founders because they have all those, they already have all the their goals established and they also have an, other milestones that investors imposed to them and then they are connected to receiving the money. So usually if you can avoid that, uh, for sure, do that. <laughs> Makes sense. And let's talk a little bit about how you leverage your network to help founders in your portfolio. Every investor likes to say that they are a value-add investor. How does that play out in reality? Yeah, so I think this is this is true. Uh, so we are living in a time of experience revolution, right? So today it's not just about the product or the service, 
Companies are racing to transform their customer experience, learning how to create a world-class customer experience. And I think this is applicable to all the industries, including ours. So um, I think that since the beginning of this year, we decided to actually create a, a platform area in which I, which I am heading today in a sense that we, we are able to track and support the companies in a more structured way. So we, we, we have always been helping our companies since the beginning, leveraging our network of investors, for instance, because something that we always try to do is to get investors. There are high net worth individuals, but also executives in big corporations. We have big corporations also that joined this last uh, fund. So we try to have those investors to actually help the company. So we need, when, when the companies come to us and ask like, oh, so you have an entry, uh, have a contact with this company XYZ. And then we can, if we don't ourselves, we can try and check like all of our investors base. So I think that this is something that we we do that. And, and this is something that attracted our investor. So because we are giving access to knowledge in, in two different uh, tech ecosystems, there are the biggest ones. So they are interested in joining us, in investing us because of that, because they have access to that and they can actually help those companies, right? Not only understanding what is happening in the market uh, worldwide. And then when we try, when we thought about establishing this, this area, we we were focusing more in terms like fundraising, market research, establishing contacts with them and, and poten- with potential clients, because this is the biggest demand from the startups, right? Like, I need clients. Help me with that. So we are now establishing a way of building relationships uh, with corporations, because that, that's the experience that we have. And that's the experience our, our investors have. And try to format this in a way uh, that is easy to, you know, plug and play with the companies. I think that's the the value add that we try to bring to our portfolio. So walk me through how you manage to structure your support to invested founders, and what is the main thing that founders that are entering Latin America or Brazil the most need help with? So in terms of the structure, we started building first of all like this network of investors relationships with corporations. We also develop a platform where our portfolio companies can access to find all the perks and offers, discounts from from partners that we have and uh, vendors and even the portfolio companies. So I think that this is something that is a real differential. And specifically with uh, the Latin America, so I think that the first step is usually the market research. Like understanding, we have this advantage that we are here. Like we have eight people of our teams in Brazil. We have also people in California and Israel, as I mentioned, but uh, most of our team is in Brazil and with a lot of connections and uh, we can help them navigate this space, which is already a lot a real complicated. So we usually do this first thing, the market research. We present them the marketplace. Then we start uh, scheduling the calls with the potential clients or even potential uh, competitors or uh, potential partners. And then once this is established, like they usually come to Brazil and then we schedule a bunch of meetings and we are together with them in those meetings. And then after that, they just like, we help them or establishing a company or even like having a local distributor that we help them navigate the space in Portuguese and not only in English, which we mentioned, this is a real challenge. And how do people, if they want to get in contact with Mindset Ventures, uh, who should they do it with and, and when, at what point? 
So if you want to partner with us, invest in us, or even receive funding, I mean, you can, of course, send me an email at Camila at Mindset.Ventures. I mean, as I mentioned, like for the companies that we are investing now, uh, we usually invest in pre-A rounds, Series A, Series B rounds. It's important that you understand our thesis and not only send a random message. You know, I think that this is something that we receive a lot. And I think that venture funds also receive a lot. Uh, emails with no recommendation, with no research, you know, those uh, cold mails that is really, really a bad when we when you want to to find funding. I think that uh, so if you are looking to contact us, please let us know, be direct and uh, be clear on your message. And what do you like to see uh, in a first message and in a deck? So the first message, I think, is really good to come with some kind of recommendation of personalization. You know, how did you find out about us? Like, why is it important to partner with us? Uh, who presented to you? Uh, who mentioned us to you? Um, and I think that in terms of um, information, uh, we invest in companies that already have revenue. So some numbers of in terms of like their growing numbers, why the team is the right team and uh, for the business, for this specific business is also really good to understand because I mean, it's it's our phrase, it's our motto, but we invest in technology, but we invest in people first. And we need to know if the team is actually complementary and they work together for a while of their experience. And for us, this is uh, something really good to see in a deck. And what's the check size and the decision-making process look like? So we invest from 750K to $2 million, depending on the round, depending on the some matters. And the decision process usually... We have the first meeting with the company, then uh, usually the sponsors from each location has this, this first meeting. And then we, if the company is something that we think that it fits our thesis, we go to a second meeting with the, all the members of the investment team. And then they have an internal meeting to decide whether to start the due diligence or not. And once we decided the diligence, we start like getting all the documents, scheduling calls with the team, scheduling, having some background checks. And after that, like at the end, the company passes our due diligence. So we schedule a presentation to investment committee. And then we have the investment committee uh, meeting right after that to decide. on. So usually we, we have taken two weeks to three months to analyze the use. It depends on the situation. But we really try to move fast without losing quality. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it's exciting to see the bridge between you know, Valley, Israel, and, and Brazil. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Camila Folkman, co-founder and managing partner of Mindset Ventures. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.